the reign of King James II of England. The new King James was like his father, stubborn, high-principled, but unlike Charles I, he was a convinced Roman Catholic, a member of that small and much-hated minority. He made the conversion of England the main aim of his life, admitting that if he had agreed to live quietly and treat his religion as a private matter, he could have been one of the most powerful kings ever to reign in England. But having been called by Almighty God to rule these kingdoms, he would think of nothing but the propagation of the Catholic religion. James's reign opened well. The attack upon the boroughs had been carefully carried out, and when the first parliament of the reign was elected, it was overwhelmingly Tory. Before it met, Titus Oates, the fabricator of the popish plot, was brought to justice. At the height of the panic of 1678, Parliament had granted him a pension of 1,200 pounds a year and apartments in a Whitehall palace. Now he was found guilty of perjury, sentenced to be flogged, imprisoned for life, and publicly exhibited in the pillory every year. This savage treatment was designed to kill him, but he survived until the next reign, when the Whigs released him and restored his pension. The Londoners who came to watch Oates' punishment showed their sympathy with the strange creature who represented their hatred of Roman Catholics. And later, in 1685, the West Country demonstrated its Protestantism by supporting the Duke of Monmouth, who landed at Lyme Regis in June and proclaimed himself king. The rebellion, however, was easily put down by local royal forces under the command of the old Earl of Faversham and his deputy, John Churchill. Monmouth's troops were cut to pieces when they tried to attack across the marshes of Sedgemoor, and the duke himself was captured and executed. His followers were given no mercy. James's Lord Chief Justice, Jeffreys, roved round the West Country in his bloody assize, showing obvious pleasure in the sentencing of about 150 men to death and another 800,000 to transportation as slaves to Barbados. James was alarmed by the support which Monmouth had found and used it as an excuse to expand the royal army. About 15,000 men camped at Hounslow Keith, just outside London, a reminder to citizens of what might, they might expect if they dared to oppose their monarch. Many of the officials appointed by James were Roman Catholics. The Test Act had, been, had made their appointment illegal, but James claimed the right to dispense with the law in certain cases. As dispensation was used more and more frequently, it became clear that the king was ignoring the law where it did not suit him. This strained the loyalty of the commons to breaking point. In France, Louis XIV started persecuting the Protestant Huguenots, and refugees were pouring into England. Members of the parliament were alive to their own danger and refused James's demand that they should repeal the Test Act. James, therefore, dissolved parliament. Without Parliament to trouble him, the king could go ahead with his plans for making England Catholic. One Roman Catholic was made Lord Lieutenant of Ireland. Another was put in charge of the navy. When the Anglicans protested, James set up a new court to exercise his supremacy over the church. It was suspiciously like the Court of High Commission, which the Long Parliament had abolished in 1641. The new court was used for an attack on Oxford and Cambridge, which were compelled to admit Roman Catholics as undergraduates and fellows of the colleges. Meanwhile, town councils and city companies were under strong pressure to add Roman Catholics to their number. These measures aroused such opposition that James was frightened. He had expected a large number of conversions to Catholicism, but the vast majority of the population remained obstinately Protestant. In a search for allies, he issued in 1687 a declaration of indulgence, suspending all the penal laws not simply against Catholics, but also against nonconformists. 
By doing this, he hoped to win the support of an influential section of the population. The king's claim to dispense with the law in individual cases had been opposed by Parliament. Now he expanded this into the right to suspend laws altogether when he did not approve of them. As the volume of criticism and anger swelled, James issued a second declaration to reinforce the first. This time he ordered it to be read in every church in the kingdom. But when the appointed Sunday came, there were only seven churches in London where the priests could be persuaded to read the declaration. The bishops who had up to this moment supported the king would do so no longer. The Archbishop of Canterbury and six other bishops petitioned James to withdraw the declaration. The king promptly had them arrested for libel. They were tried in Westminster Hall where Stratford and Charles I had once stood. But such was the effect of James's policy that the bishops were now heroes. One man who was present in the hall describes the excitement when the jury returned the verdict. Not guilty. There was continued shouting for half an hour so that no business could be done. And at night it was mighty rejoicing in ringing of bells, discharging of guns, lighting of candles, and bonfires in several places. A joyful deliverance to the Church of England. Before the trial opened, an event had taken place which changed the whole situation. James's second wife, Mary of Modena, gave birth to a son. There was no hope left now for those who had been prepared to put up with a Catholic king because he would, in not too distant future, be succeeded by his Protestant daughter Mary. All over the country the opponents of James united. He had angered the Anglicans by his support of Catholicism, and nonconformists by his crude attempts to bribe them with the Declaration of Indulgence. Most important of all, the property owners, nobles, country gentry, and merchants resented the way in which the royal council was challenging their control of local life by securing appointments of Roman Catholics as lords, lieutenants, magistrates, and town councillors. Seven representatives of this dominating section of English society met in secret and sent an invitation to William of Orange to bring an army to England and save the country from the Catholic menace. The signatories included a suspended Bishop of London, leading Whigs like Henry Sidney, brother of Algernon, who had been executed for his part in a Rye House plot, and old Tory Danby, who had been responsible for William's marriage to James's daughter Mary, who had been responsible for William's marriage to James's daughter Mary. William had one overriding ambition, and that is to defeat Louis XIV, whose aggressive foreign policy was a threat to the very existence of Holland. The English fleet might easily swing the scales against France in the struggle. It was this prospect that decided William. And in October 1688, he sailed. The Protestant wind blew him down the channel, past the English fleet which was waiting for him on the east coast. On November the 5th, while England was celebrating an earlier deliverance from a Catholic threat, he landed in Devon at Torby Bay. But there was no general uprising in William's favor. So, so much for James. Now we bring William, and then once once we have passed him on in the history, we will be finished with the Wars of the Three Kingdoms and the Aftermath. Sources for this, History of England by Thornton, Lockyer, and Smith, various biographies on James, on the, or the kings at this particular time, as well as on Dutch history and William and Mary. So I hope you enjoyed that. And as always, don't forget to come by the website, summahistorica.com or historyaccordingtobob.com and ask a question, leave a comment, check out our merchandise. And if you like what we're doing, please feel free to support us. Thank you very much.